welcome you to our community worship today. It's so good to be here with you. I have a couple quick things that we're excited about going on and want you to know about. Today we have our president, Beck Taylor, sharing with us. We're looking forward to that. Tomorrow night uh, at, at Awake, if you haven't checked it out, this might be a good week to check it out. As our track coach, Toby Schwartz, will be, will be speaking. And then Thursday here at, at our community chapel, we'll have, we have the Jubilation Dancers for the first time this week leading us in worship, as well as we'll be hearing another one of our faculty stories of freedom in Jesus, as Ron Pyle from Communications will share a little bit of his story about freedom in Jesus uh, before we come to communion. So we're looking forward to that and so glad we're here to, to worship together as a community. One of the things uh, we always think about worship is as life takes us and we get dragged around with busyness or distraction or sin or bad choices or whatever or, or just too much good this stuff, we get frazzled and we're getting dragged all over the place and worship is a place where we stop and we remember where the goal is and we look at that goal who is Jesus, and figure out what really matters. And so we're doing that today, together. Let's pray together. God, thank you that you are the living God, that you are not a God we just make up, but you are a God who is real and alive, who made all things and sustains us and comes to us and speaks to us in your love and care even today. Thank you that you are a God who is a, a living and breathing and moving and drawing us together as your children in you. Thank you that you love us and you love this campus and you love this world. And thank you that you have called us to be a part of your good work in this world. We pray that, that we could live in the freedom and the goodness of what we just talked about, the loving, your loving fatherhood for us. And in that, that this world would know your loving fatherhood more and more and more in and through us, your children. Please bless Beck as he, as he preaches today. May we hear and receive what you have for us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Get to your feet, folks. <laughs> Come on, you can do better than that. I know you know the words. Come on, let me hear it. Come on. Come on. Okay, all right. That's good. What has Steffi started? I just couldn't resist the temptation this morning to get us on our feet and start. That song has nothing to do with the sermon this morning. I just, (laughs) nothing other than, other than we are celebrating today to be together in worship on this campus, right? We're glad to be here this morning. Welcome. This is such an important time for our community. As we come together, we worship the living God. We, uh, We see one another in our busy days. We're reminded of the ways God is working in and through our community. Uh, When I'm on campus, I'm here from 11 to 11.30 on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And I hope you all are making that commitment as well. It's wonderful to see everyone. Well, if you're following along this semester, you know that we're in the midst of studying Galatians, Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. 
And you know that, uh, well, first of all, it's been a fantastic semester, right? We've just gotten uh, amazing stories, amazing testimony, amazing teaching. But we are in the midst of this letter that was written to the early church. And it was so early, the church was so new, that they were still trying to kind of grapple with new things, trying to figure some stuff out. And one of the main things that this letter that Paul wrote is concerned with was, how do Jewish people retain their identities as Jews, but also accept the good news of Christ? And in that is, how do we treat the law, this thing that was passed down to Moses and his descendants that really helped to define and protect and set apart the people of God? How do we deal with the law and the faith and freedom that we're hearing in Christ? And so we're going to continue that theme today as we start with chapter 4. But I want to back up to just one quick section in chapter 3. So we're going to read chapter 3, verses 23 through 25, and then we're going to skip ahead a little bit to the first seven verses in chapter 4. So uh, we'll, I'll read this. Now, before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. And then moving on to chapter 4, the first seven verses. My point is this. Heirs, as long as they are minors, are no better than slaves, though they are owners of all the property. But they remain under guardians and trustees until the date set by the father. So with us. While we were minors, we were enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world. But when the fullness of that time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. Friends, if we don't have anything to celebrate this morning, that is it, right? That we are called heirs of the Heavenly Father. One of the things you'll learn when you become a little older and you start having a family and you start becoming a responsible adult is that you have to plan for things that you really don't want to happen. And one of those things would be the untimely death of, say, in my family, Julie and me. And we have three kids, Zach, Lauren, and Chloe. And so a few years ago, we set about the, the it's, it's not a joyful kind of experience, but sitting down with an attorney and mapping out our estates. And in our last will and testament, we provide for our children, Zach, Lauren, and Chloe, should something happen to Julie and me. We established a trust. And into that organization called a trust go all the assets that Julie and I might own as parents. We also established guardians, people who would not only look after our children, but would also look after the assets that we have placed into the trust. Zach, Lauren, and Chloe, they are our heirs. Nothing can change that. What is ours is theirs. But they have to live for a certain period of time, and in our case, until they turn 25 years old, each of them. They have to live under a certain period of time by a different set of rules. Until they come of age, until they're ready to take on the full responsibility of being without limitation, until they are ready to have full freedom in their identities as the adult children of Beck and Julie. 
then they will be given full agency and freedom under the law. Well, the same is true with God. And that's what Paul's talking about here. As Paul explains to us at the beginning of this chapter, God, in his mercy, in his mercy, gave his people a set of religious rules and customs to follow when they were yet underage spiritually. Not, not in a physical sense, but spiritually. And because the people of God were not yet ready for full agency and full freedom outside of the law, God gave them the law, again, out of his mercy, to hold them and to protect them and to nurture them. Uh, it's maybe not the best analog in the world, but I thought of our difference between on-campus and off-campus rules, right? When students live on campus, we prescribe a set of laws, a set of rules, the big three, right, that kind of govern life on campus. We, those rules attempt to do everything from talk about how we live in right relationship with one another and build community to um, who we live with, um, whether or not we can drink or uh, partake in other substances. These things are rules indeed, but they are meant to surround you with love and care and concern. The rules and standards on campus are meant to protect you and to hold you close and to come alongside and to show our presence as a loving community as you grow and mature and become adults. And the same is true for the law that God handed down through Moses. But just as God in his mercy gave his people the law, he has also chosen by his grace at a moment only God could choose to give us Jesus, God's only son, who although born under the law, as the scripture reads, and who lived his life blameless under the law, was put to death in some sense by the law in order that we may find freedom from the law. Okay, I just said a whole bunch of stuff. Okay, let me read that again. God, by his grace, and at a time only he understands, gave us Jesus, his only son, who was born under the law, who lived his life blameless under that law, who was put to death by the law, in order that we may find freedom from the law. In Jesus' own words in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus did not come to replace the law, but rather to fulfill it, to make it complete. That is, in God's wisdom, Jesus was always needed in God's reconciliation work in the world. And thus, if we read carefully, Jesus was always foreshadowed in the law. Always. God knew that the law would only get us so far in the redemptive narrative and that ultimately God would have to write that law on our hearts in the person of Christ, thereby releasing us from the burdens of the law. And here's the incredible thing. Because God has sent his son Jesus, his son, his proper heir, to release us from the captivity of the law, God has also adopted us as Jesus' co-heirs. As adopted heirs, we receive all of the same privileges, all of the same rights. We receive all that comes with being called daughters and sons of the creator of the universe. And God proves that he's done this by placing his own spirit, by placing Jesus' spirit within those of us who believe. In a very real sense, God has placed his mark, his irrevocable seal upon us, calling us his heirs. Friends, 
this text is rich in theology. Where does the law stand relative to the faith in Christ? And I mean, we can talk, I mean, theologians have scratched their heads about this for a long time. But friends, don't miss that this is the heart of the gospel. Paul's talking theology here, but he's preaching gospel here. And this is the gospel. That under the law, we have no chance for right relationship with God. Because because of our sinfulness through grace, God sent his son Jesus into the world to take upon his own shoulders the same impossible requirements that the law places on us. But unlike us, Jesus lived his life blameless under the law. He was sinless. But our sin nailed him to the cross. And he suffers the consequences of sin for us. And then and friends, here's the great mystery. By taking our penalty and through nothing but our own belief and faith in Jesus, God adopts us into his family and imparts to us the same status as his own son. Friends, if there's something to celebrate this morning, it is that. It is that identity. Uh, Paul goes on to say we even get to call him by the same name Jesus did, Daddy, Abba, Father, Papa, Dad. We could play celebration and walk out right now. That's enough. That's, 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 that's where our hope is as a community of faith. But there are a couple of points that are on my heart this morning that I want to talk to you about. I feel compelled to mention two ways that I think that evil is trying to corrupt this beautiful message that Paul is imparting to us in this letter. The first, we read throughout the entire Old Testament and New Testament that we have an adversary that actively and subversively works to destroy and distort the redemptive story that we're talking about. Our adversary is clever, In the ways he uses deception to distort the wonderful message that's being given to us. And our enemy is using the same tactics today as he used in the first century church. They are just as effective today as they were back then. Listen carefully. What makes Satan's work in this area so difficult to discern is that he is using things that appear to be good. Good things that appear to be clean and moral and religious. He's using things that otherwise appear worthy in order to grossly distort the message of faith and freedom in Christ. In the context of Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia, the good thing made unholy was the law itself. Along with many of the cultural practices of that day were also linked to the law, legal principles and Jewish customs and special holidays and ceremonial practices and special ordinances. These were all good things given by God to the Jewish people in order to hold them close and set them apart as we spoke of earlier. The people being used in this devilish scheme in Paul's day were called Judaizers. These were Jewish believers, Jewish Christians in the first century who felt that adherence to Jewish law and custom was a prerequisite, was a co-requisite to faith in Christ. Remember that throughout Christianity, Christians have always wanted to add things to faith in order to 
to make ourselves faithful people. Forrest preached just a few weeks ago on Jesus plus. What are the things we want to add to Jesus and faith in Jesus? The modern church is no different. Christians are tempted to add things, co-requisites of faith. Perhaps it's your particular denominational choice. Or the church you attend. Or how hard you work. Or your political party affiliation. Or what translation of the Bible you read and how often. Or what food or drink you abstain from. Or who you call as friends. Or even what college you attend. In Paul's day, it was called Judaism. In our day, it's called legalism. Which is nothing more than idolatry. It's nothing more than the substitution of additional requirements we might impose on ourselves or others for the grace and freedom that are offered in Christ alone. Why is Satan so interested and invested in legalism? Why does he love that as one of his primary tools? It's because Satan knows that we can't keep the law. He knows that. No matter who writes it or how hard we try, he knows we are destined to failure. And then he knows that we'll think less of ourselves when we fail and because of our failure. And too often we become shamed by our failure and we retreat from God. And that is exactly what our adversary wants. It's a never-ending destructive cycle. We set up rules and expectations for ourselves and others. And then we judge whether or not we've met those rules or expectations and whether or not then we're worthy of God's love. Then in an effort to remedy our failures, we either double down with the same rules and expectations, that is, we try harder, or we come up with new rules and expectations only to fail again. And by constantly being in a state of failure, we continue to question our true identities in Christ. We begin to think that God's love is conditional rather than unconditional. That is a distortion of our identities in Christ. Rather than relying on the spirit of Christ, we turn to self-righteousness. When you use the law in order to earn favor with God, you are not only in bondage to the law, but you are in bondage to Satan. And even when we succeed in keeping the law, even when Satan can't keep us from keeping the law, he will tempt you to obey them in the wrong spirit. Frankly, I don't think Satan cares whether or not you keep the law. So long as you keep it in your own strength. Satan will even help you keep the law as long as you keep it in your own strength or give yourself credit. The great deceiver doesn't care if you go to church or teach Sunday school or do godly or moral things. He's all in on your moral agenda, in fact, as long as you rely on yourself rather than on God. Friends, let's guard ourselves. Let's guard our community. Let's help each other guard against legalism. The second distortion of these truths found in Galatians that I want to warn us about this morning concerns how we define our own identities. In our culture today, each one of us is encouraged to spend copious time and energy 
communicating to the world about our various individual identities. We are told constantly that our individual stories are important and that the world should hear our stories and respect those identities we've inherited or we've chosen for ourselves. It's what the New York Times columnist David Brooks, who was here last week, called the big me phenomenon. We spend hours online sculpting our identities through social media. We read authors or we listen to music that convinces us that if only the world knew us better, or better respected what makes each of us unique or special, then we would be treated differently. We would be treated more justly. And that our preferences, our desires, and our needs in this life, they would be met. Now, listen carefully, friends. Don't get me wrong on this. I'm a big believer in the idea that the body of Christ that is truly unified also acknowledges the ways in which our church and society have systematically placed value and worth on other people. And that those value calculations are often the result of uninformed stereotypes and misconceptions, whether benign or malignant. That is why the work that we're doing on this campus around diversity, equity, and inclusion is so important. It is rooted in the gospel because Jesus has meant to tear down those walls of division in order to unify us in Christ. We should never be tempted, though, to allow those identities that we or the world thinks are so important to trump our true identities in Christ. If we believe and have faith in Jesus, the identities that matter most are our claims as sons and daughters of God, who in and through Jesus are adopted in unity as co-heirs in the kingdom. And God graciously gives us his spirit to confirm that citizenship. It's true that the world would label me as a white, middle-aged, highly educated, heterosexual, upper-income male, And to some degrees, those identities are important. They define who I am in some respect. And they help people and myself understand how I see the world. But they are not my paramount identity. I am a son of God, saved by the grace of Jesus. We are invited to be sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ through Jesus' redemptive work on the cross. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you.